0: Once again, we close this Lord's Day together. We have the honor and privilege of looking to God's Word. What a blessing it is to have God's Word so easily accessible to us in this day and age. This past week, I don't know if you knew this, but this past week marked 484 years since the death of William Tyndale, English reformer and the man who brought us, who brought God's Word into the English language. And we still, almost 500 years later, Um, are reaping the benefits of his sacrifice for us. So praise the Lord for that. Please turn in your Bibles to Mark 13. On various occasions as I've stood before you week by week, I've told you that I love the gospel of Mark and told you why I love the gospel of Mark for various reasons. I had the privilege of preaching a few times in the early chapters of Mark when I was in seminary and when I thought about a sermon series, I thought this was was something I would love to study and would love to preach from, and I have. However, Mark 13 kind of loomed large on the horizon as a mountain that I uh, feared to climb because of the, the, the challenge that it is. Um, many scholars say that it's, it's the most difficult chapter in Mark, and, and it's among the most difficult passages of Scripture in God's Word. Um, One scholar has written a a 500-plus page book surveying all of the various views and interpretations of this particular chapter. So if you want to learn more, you can can buy that book. I can give you the name of it. However, it was written in the 1990s. So if you want the last 25 years of scholarship, I'm sure there's a lot more reading for you to do. Um, But I don't intend to bore you with all the theories. Um, I believe and we as as God's people and and the session at Christ Church and and our denomination believes in the perspicuity of scripture. I like saying that word because it's fun to say. Basically, it means the clarity of scripture that we can understand God's word. And there's a little phrase that I hope you have heard before that the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. In other words, God has given us and revealed himself in and through his word in such a way that we can understand what, uh, what it is about him, what he has required of us. But there are certain portions of scripture that are difficult, and this is one of them. But I do believe that God, um, by his spirit, um, has inspired his word, and by his spirit, he illuminates his word to us. And so, um, let us pray before we read this text, and that, that the Lord would understand his word. Let us pray together. Lord, we need you. Um, We are fallen and we are weak. And Lord, we desire your word and it is authoritative over us. And so Lord, we want to know what it says so that we might live pleasing to you. Lord, would you give us grace? Lord, your word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, and we pray, O God, that you would, by your spirit, by your power, and through your words, speak to us, your people tonight. Lord, we are weak, but you are strong. So Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight, O oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark chapter 13, reading the first 23 verses. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, "Look, teacher. What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to him, "See that Say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father has his child. And the children will rise against parents and, they, and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days... For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. Our outline this evening for this text is centered around this idea of destruction. We see first the prophecy of destruction in the early verses. Then we'll consider the precursors of destruction as Christ lays out things that that the disciples should look for before these things will come to pass. And then finally, we will consider the purpose of this destruction. Now, you may be wondering what particular view I take on this chapter, and I want to lay a few cards on the table before I start here. And I think there there are things in this chapter that clearly point to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. When Titus came in with his troops and actually did destroy the temple, this great temple. There's other parts of this chapter, and we'll see them especially next week as we look at this, the second half of this chapter. There's parts of this chapter that I think do clearly point to the second coming of Christ. But... I want to maintain and I want this to be in your mind as we dive into this chapter. And that is the the fact that Christ gives details and warnings about both of these events, both hugely significant. And he gives them right next to each other and sometimes interwoven between each other. And there's warnings that come to the disciples for their day and for their context that they need for their own safety. And there's other things that come to us for our day and time that we need to understand. However, there's a connection between all of this. And I think there's the reason why this is all laid out here in Mark 13. So as we approach this chapter, I think it's important not to just think of it as, as some, some kind of prophecy that, that is detached from the rest of the narrative of Mark. No. No. Remember that Jesus has been in the temple area, okay? He's been in the the court of the Gentiles. He's been answering questions from the leaders of the Jews. Many of those were antagonistic against him. He's been wisely answering. He's been calling them out. He's been pointing out their unbelief and their rejection of his message. All of that started back in chapter 11 when he cleansed the temple when he th- overturned the tables of the money changers, and he, he, um, he, he did what he did there, and he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And that was much to the consternation of the leaders, and, and that kind of seemed to precipitate all these interactions and, and sometimes these hostile questions that came to him over the course of, of the rest of chapter 11 and 12 that we've been looking at over the last several weeks. But now he is leaving the temple. And, and it, we can't help but wonder, I can't help but wonder, if, if the disciples felt the gravity of this. If maybe they sensed that this was the last time that Jesus was leaving the temple. And they, they, they should have known that his death was near. He had told them that he was going to be persecuted by the leaders of the Jews. And that he would die And that he would rise again. However, they weren't really thinking of that that moment. They were enamored with the beauty of the building that they were leaving. Now, I recently read in the Old Testament in in the book of 1 Kings about the dedication, the construction, and the dedication of Solomon's temple. That temple was great. That temple had a beauty and a grandeur to it. That is not this temple. That was the first temple. This is what they call the second temple or Herod's temple. Solomon's temple, if you remember your Bible history, was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587. Nehemiah then, following the exile, began to rebuild the temple, but it never reached the the status or the grandeur of Solomon's temple. But then Herod, Herod the Great, in in, uh, about 19 BC, I believe it was, began rebuilding and and making this temple what it became in Jesus' day. And, and it, was, it was amazing. The whole complex covered 35 acres. The sanctuary was 150 feet tall. The columns that held up the portico was, were so large that it said that three men could barely touch their fingers if they were to, to reach their arms, to try to reach around it. And even though the work had begun a couple years or a couple decades before Christ was born, it was still ongoing in Christ's adulthood, some fifty years later. And it it's said that at the busiest time of this project, the Herod kept ten thousand workmen busy for eight years building it. What, a, what an amazing structure it must have been. Um, Josephus, the the Jewish historian, said that some of the stones were 60 feet long and and weighing up to a million pounds. Typically, when commentators quote Josephus on things like this, they say he had a tendency to exaggerate. So you you take that for, for whatever it's worth. But I think the point is that it was amazing. The structure was amazing. The stones were white, and so when the sun shined, Shown upon the temple, it, it was brilliant. And they said from a distance, it looked like a snow-capped mountain. So imagine then this beautiful, amazing, um, awesome temple. And they're leaving it. The, the, one of the disciples comments upon its beauty. And Jesus says, it's going to be torn down. How shocking would that be to them? Because not only was it a beautiful, amazing building, it was the center of religious life for them. It was the place where God dwelt. And Jesus is saying, it's going to be torn down. It's going to be leveled to the ground. Jesus is telling them in somewhat veiled language what he had spoken of previously in the parable of the tenants. That he would be the cornerstone of a new spiritual temple in his kingdom. But how often are we like the disciples? Instead of really focusing upon the, the things of God and the kingdom of God, we're enamored with the things of this world. Colossians 3, in the, in the opening verses of that, says to set our affections on things above, not on things below. But how often are we like these disciples? And our eyes are are drawn to the glitz and the glamour of the world, instead of focusing upon the kingdom of Christ. Jesus has given a prophecy of destruction. And their natural question then is, when? When is this going to happen? Jesus leads them across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. This is called the Olivet Discourse because he sat on the Mount of Olives as he was giving this to the people. So here they are sitting on the top of the Mount of Olives and these four disciples ask him privately, Jesus, when? When are these things going to take place? So they're, they're looking across the valley at this beautiful structure. And, and they're thinking, how in the, probably thinking, how in the world is this going to come apart? How in the world is this beautiful edifice that should be there for another thousand years going to be leveled to the ground? So, Jesus doesn't directly answer their question, but he gives them precursors of destruction. In other words, things that, signs that it's coming, forerunners to the destruction of the temple. It's interesting and somewhat ironic in light of how people sometimes treat this text that the first thing Jesus says in verse 5 is see that no one leads you astray. How many in the church have been led astray by? Wondering about in-time events. Perhaps many of you here will remember the book that came out in 1988 titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. I think the author of that book predicted, I think it was September of 1988, that the Lord would return. And no, he did not. And we are still waiting today. Many before that made similar predictions that were wrong and many since then have made similar predictions that were wrong. But I think it's, it's clear in this text that the disciples and Jesus are talking about an actual event. And now that we are on this side of history, we know that the destruction of the temple did occur in A.D. 70 when the Roman general Titus besieged Jerusalem, brought down the temple, and killed many of the Jews in Jerusalem. But there's a sense in which these events, that even though they were fulfilled in history, can instruct and inform us as we wait today in the 21st century for the appearance of our Lord. As one has helpfully described it, it's like driving towards the mountains. It's like you, you see the mountains or maybe you see one prominent mountain and you think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to be able to drive up that mountain. And then as you get closer and, and you maybe ascend that peak and you drive out over it, then you realize there's more. There's another mountain beyond it. And you're actually in a series of mountains, and there's more. And I think that is in a, that's the way we need to think about this, because we are living in the last days. The last days are not something that happened or began in 1900 or in 1988. The last days began at Christ's resurrection, and they continue until his return. So keep this in mind as we go through this. And then Jesus gives a long list of warnings and signs for the disciples to be aware of. He says to beware of false messiahs. These were historically present between the time of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem. He says to beware of wars and rumors of wars. And we hear those today and we think, well, that could be talking about today. And it could, but that was true in their day as well. International conflict was true then, as it is now. Earthquakes is a physical thing that Jesus pointed to. Well, there were major earthquakes in Phrygia in AD 61, in Pompeii in 63, famines. We, we read about that referenced even in Corinthians, and, and how that, that Paul um, was calling upon um, an offering to be gathered for those that were suffering in Jerusalem under a time of famine. So all of these things point to first century events. And then Jesus says, these are just the beginning of trouble or birth pains. In, in, the, in a sense, like, like la- the onset of labor for a, a, a mother with child is, is announcing the soon and sure arrival of that baby. Jesus is saying, see these things They are the beginning of troubles. They're the beginning of these things. And Jesus continues with His warning, this time making them personal about what would happen to them. He said they would be delivered over to councils. They would be beaten in synagogues. They would stand before governors and kings to bear witness to Christ. They would be brought and delivered over to trial. They would be called upon to make an unprepared defense of themselves and the gospel. They would be betrayed by their own family. They would be hated, and some would even be martyred. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like the book of Acts to me. I think that is very clear that this very much could be the book of Acts. And this was fulfilled in the lifetime of many of the disciples. But do you know what else this sounds like? This sounds like life for Christians in places like Iran and China, in the Soviet Union, in, in the previous generation, there is instruction for us in the 21st century here in the early verses of Mark 13. And this is something that we or our children may face in just a few years, even in our nation, we don't know. And I've sought to just summarize verses 9 through 13 for you. I skimmed over one verse that seems almost parenthetical. Look at verse 10 with me, if you will. It says, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. If we left that out, it seems like there's a flow from verse 9 to verse 11 where it's talking about all the things that they will face. But Jesus inserts this in here, that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Now, some would look at this as an indication that this is not past history, that this has not been fulfilled. But yet, in the minds of the disciples, and I think in the mind of the Apostle Paul, it had, in a general sense, the gospel had been taken to all of the known world. Romans 16, verses 25 and 20 through 27 says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. This is at the end of the book of Romans. And, and the Apostle Paul is, is, seems to be reflecting upon the fact that the gospel had spread. And we know historically, through reading through the book of Acts, the gospel did go out into the known world, into the Roman Empire at that time. But what we need to see here is that it happened in the midst of persecution. Christ's followers were to be taking the gospel to the nations in the midst of all of these things that Jesus is saying that they would face. And so are we today. As we diligently wait for Christ's appearing today, we are to be about the business of sharing the gospel with the world. Even when and especially when we are called to do it in the face of persecution. And then Jesus warns them, beginning in verse 14, about something that is perhaps the most challenging and enigmatic thing of this whole text. And that is the abomination of desolation. What in the world is the abomination of desolation? We, we know, first of all, from the language of our Lord, that it is something that, that seems very pivotal. And he, because he says, when you see this, flee. Flee. This is something you need to pay attention to, disciples. This is significant. When you see this, you need to to run for the hills, literally, is what he says. Run for the mountains. So what is it? Well, it's language that comes from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel. We know that an abomination from reading all of the Old Testament is something that is especially detestable to God. It is a great sin, and it often carried the penalty of death. It involved a major covenant violation, um, especially idolatry. It also included sins of homosexuality and child sacrifice. So it is something that, that was extremely grievous in God's eyes. Now, without going into all of the details of the text of Daniel, it's generally accepted that all four references where this is is mentioned in the book of Daniel, in the prophecy of Daniel. It speaks of the atrocities committed by Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC. And that is when when this leader came in and tried to put down a Jewish rebellion. And what he did was he set up an idol to Zeus in the temple. If that's not an abomination, I don't know what is. On top of that, he also began to sacrifice unclean animals, swine, upon the altar, which again was detestable to God and according to his, his law that he had given and detestable to the people. So that event was emblazoned upon the minds of Jewish people in the day of Christ. As one commentator said, that, that abomination came to symbolize an unspeakable affront to the sanctity of God's house and to God himself. And Jesus here is referring to something that is yet to come that is in some way similar to that. I can't tell you definitively what it is because there are so many opinions about it. Perhaps it were the Romans themselves who were unclean in a sense, that they were not God's people and they were idol worshipers. They carried idols in their pockets. They, they, they prayed to the emperor. They were idolatrous. Perhaps it was then. Perhaps it was, it was actually the zealots themselves who in their zeal for and in their rebellion against the Romans in um, the late 60s, Um, entered the holy place with defiled feet and set up their own high priest. And the rightful high priest in that day is said to have described their activities as abominations. Perhaps it was that. Whatever it was, Jesus was telling them that there would be something significant coming up and it would be something that would tell them they needed to flee to safety. Jesus is giving them a literal warning. And Mark makes this interesting thing in verse um, 14. They they call it a narrative aside. In fact, what it is, he's interrupting what Jesus is actually speaking. And he's saying, let the reader understand. What he's saying is to his first century audience, to whom he is writing, he's saying, pay attention. This applies to you. You need to listen to what Jesus is saying because it is not just for the disciples on the Mount of Olives. It's for you, first century reader. And, and he's speaking with great urgency. He's saying, flee, run. He says, don't go back home and get your coat. If, if you are slowed down because of small children or pregnancy, it, it, it could be bad. If, if, if your flight's in winter when it's, when it's wet and muddy or, or, or snow on the ground, it's going to be hard. And in the siege of Jerusalem, he said said it would be bad and a tribulation like never seen before and never to be seen again. And in the siege of Jerusalem, things were horrific. Many Christians were spared, though, because instead of following conventional wisdom and fleeing to the walled city, like people maybe typically would they fled to the mountains as Jesus had instructed them. And many Christians were spared in that time when Jerusalem was destroyed because they were not in the city. It's said that in, in the spring of A.D. 70, that, that the General Titus allowed worshipers to come in. Um, Jewish people would always go up to Jerusalem at the time of Passover, and he let them go in and lock the doors so their supplies were depleted more quickly and he could kill more Jews. It was a terrible time. The the Romans historians tell us that the Romans crucified so many Jews in that days that they ran out of wood for the crosses. Josephus has said, and and again, this number may be inflated, but he says that 1.1 million Jews died in the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. Again, we see a clue that time will continue after this event because Jesus makes reference to this this period of tribulation not being excelled by anything in the future. But in all this, God made a way to preserve his people. He had warned them of what was to come. He he was showing them mercy and telling them about this. He made a way to preserve his people. And he closes the section by giving them another warning about false Christs and false prophets. So we have seen his prophecy of destruction. He has given warnings and the precursors of destruction. And finally, and briefly, I want us to consider the purpose of destruction. Did you notice the question that the disciples don't ask here? They ask when, and that's perhaps a natural question when you think of something as cataclysmic as the destruction of this beautiful temple. But the question that they don't ask is why? Why did this happen? Why, Jesus, is the temple going to be destroyed? There is much that could be said here, but, but two points briefly. The first is something that we looked at last time when we, when we met and we thought about the, the widow's might and how she came as an example of a godly woman that, whose faith was strong in Christ and compared that with the evil of those that took advantage of widows. And if you recall, we talked about how the destruction of the temple, in a sense, was God's wrath and judgment upon these religious leaders that rejected the message of Christ and laid burdens upon the people of God that were not required. The scribes and elders held the reins of religious power with an iron fist. They hated the Lord, and they looked for ways to destroy Him. They rejected Christ, and this was His judgment upon them. But the other reason is the most significant. And that is that even though this temple was massive and beautiful, even though it was the pride of the nation, and even though it was not officially complete at the time of Christ, it was obsolete. It was obsolete. Why? Because one greater than the temple had come. One greater than the temple was there. Jesus told the Jews in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then just a couple verses down in the text, he says that the temple is my body. The temple was the dwelling place of God. It was where men could access the presence of God in and through the sacrifices. But no more. God himself had come down. Jesus came to dwell with us. He tabernacled with us. He is the new temple. The author of Hebrews says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, speaking of Jesus Christ, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like these high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus Christ is the new and better temple. And that beautiful structure that sat on that hill was obsolete because Jesus had come. It is only in and through him that we have access to God. As we close this evening, this text, I titled it, The Signs of the End. The Signs of the End of that Age under the Second Temple. It is about the destruction of that temple. And I think that these first 23 verses do historically point to the events of A.D. 70. But we in the 21st century should take heed and recognize that Christ is, is really weaving these events together for us and for a warning for us. We should not take this, this, this passage or this chapter and, and just make two piles of verses and say, Well, this is about history in AD 70 and this is about some unknown point in the future and i'm here in the middle so i don't have to worry about either one of them no that's not how we should look at it we should recognize that there's warnings for us here today and there's really and that's that's the theme i think that that we especially need to focus on in the in the next set of verses but it's it's also here in verses 1 through 23. verse 23 said to be on our guard um It it tells us to be watchful. We are told that to make sure that no one leads us astray, as it says in verse 5. Christ's disciples were called to diligence and watchfulness, and so are we. They were called to proclaim the gospel to the nations, and so are we. They were to be busy living their lives for God's glory, and so should we. We must be busy looking for ways that that we can actively live out our faith in this day, in these last days, as we look for Christ's glorious appearing, we should look for ways to glorify Him in our lives. Let us pray.